Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Listening to Concord Matters. I'm your host today, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, here with my usual compadre of Dangerous Companions, Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstead, Illinois, and Sean Smith, Pastor of St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel in West Point, Illinois. Gentlemen, we're going to be talking today, trying to make ourselves grow to be of one mind according to the scriptures as confessed in the Book of Concord, particularly the Apology to the Book of Concord, Article 4, which we expect to be reading for. Well, a little while as we work our way through this most salutary, most necessary of doctrines, that on which the church stands or falls. Good to have you with me in studio today, fellas. Great to be here. Absolutely glad to be here. Thanks. So we've been punching at this thing straight through for three weeks and kind of round and round we go. I think today, though, we're hitting the edge of Melanchthon's, you might call them his opening arguments in the court. Right, so if we think of this as a a legal brief that he's presenting to the judge or to a to a court of his peers, he's he's taking quite a bit of time to make an op- opening set of statements, and then from there he's going to go even deeper, picking up, repeating what he has already said, but diving in uh, to, to leave it so that there's no question at all that according to Scripture, according to the fathers. Justification is by grace through faith in Christ, and you, if you want to go against that, you got to just stand against Scripture and the fathers. Absolutely, and you were talking about kind of the layout there. You know, it, the early part here in stating his case, uh, we talked about this someone last time. Uh, there's the problem, the arguments against, arguments for, and then the authors answer and um, he's probably stated the problem just initially early on and so these are the arguments against you know because uh, we'll see right as we jump in here th- this is what the adversaries the 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 other side the um, um, whatever other side of a court case my my brain's right, not right, working right. on prosecution but, uh, defendants yeah, yeah or defendant yeah yeah well actually it's probably the prosecution right. is what I'm looking for because they they are the ones saying that the Lutherans are illegal. They're not a real uh, Christian church body, and uh, and so they're yeah they're defending. They're making their case. How far are we today from a time when the court case and the and the the pomp and the circumstance was worried about whether or not Christianity was the right form of Christianity? And we live in an age now where uh, all forms of Christianity are really being scoffed at. Of course, I'm thinking about other things as well. You guys know about, but uh, it's it's kind of we don't want to look back and think, man, it must have been easy for them because I don't think it was. I think it was right. it was tougher. And with the smile on your face here in studio, I can see that uh, you're you're thinking about. Uh, things that play out today but today the government isn't going to speak at least not here in the united states about what is or is not true and authentic faith what is or is not faithful to uh, our confession of faith because the u.s government doesn't care however there is a court case playing out it's not a legal versus illegal kind of a court case though but it's the court of public opinion Hmm. and that is getting played out right now um in parishes and in church bodies here in the United States 
and around the world where people are bringing their charges and saying the faith that you confess, the Jesus that you talk about, the uh, the scripture that you hold to isn't real. And uh, the church finds herself being once again the defendant against a prosecutorial court of public opinion. And our situation, while being distinct, isn't different from the situation of the 16th century and of the Lutheran Church of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and so on. Because these same questions are getting asked and people are saying, well, if I try really hard, Mm. are you going to hold that against me? Well... If if what matters is that, and we're going to, as we pick up here, we're going to be talking about the acts of love that we do and how those acts of love are, according to uh, the attackers, are a good thing. And this is the same thing that culture says. The argument hasn't really changed a whole lot between those who attacked the... Uh, the Augsburg Confession with their confutation or their argument against it hasn't changed from then to now who's saying it and what their legal standing is that's changed but the arguments that's all the same right it's got a different veneer now so now people want to argue about six-day creation and the definition of marriage but at the at the root of it it's still about grace versus good works it's still about how do i justify myself exactly Um, and i think we i think we regularly see that because that that veneer of the six-day creationism and uh, the veneer of what what makes the church the church uh, often falls far, far short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you scratch that surface, uh, it's almost like with a lottery ticket, when you get your coin out and you scratch that, uh, mm. that lining off of it, and you realize it's easier to attack a six-day creation versus uh, evolution over millions of years than it is to say, no, I don't buy this grace thing. I don't buy Mm. the incarnation of Jesus Christ that you talk about. I don't buy that. Uh, And so it's a, it's a smaller argument to say, I don't believe in the 6,000 year thing because science, as opposed to, yeah, your whole concept of grace, dear pastor, dear Christian, I don't buy it. So you can hide from whatever you want to hide from or I should say behind whatever you want to hide behind. At the end of the day, you still have to answer this question. uh, What is Judgment Day going to mean for you? And what are you going to plead, innocent or guilty? And and Melanchthon's whole argument is, look, we all got to plead guilty or we're in some some big trouble. Any more thoughts before we jump in? Yeah, I mean, just piggybacking on that, um, and and I want to dig in with some other examples once we do some reading here in a second. Um, But... uh, you know, to, to use an example of like what I'm facing today. So I'm dealing with a cold and, uh, I happen to be dealing with a runny nose right now. So that's a, that's a surface, um, kind of complaint, a presenting issue, but there's a root cause, right? Sometimes it manifests itself as a runny nose, sometimes a scratchy throat, a cough, you know, congestion, whatever it may be. Um, but there's always a root cause and that's a virus, right? Mm. That needs to be dealt with and we can manage the symptoms all we want. Um, but the presenting symptoms, uh, maybe present themselves in different ways, as, as Peter was pointing out today. Um, but it's the same root cause, which is our sinner that just doesn't like to die. Yeah, yep, that, that's at the root. And we are going to find anything we can to stay in the way of that. But our Lord is going to keep pushing forward to kill us and to raise us in what he is. Let's, let's pick up at paragraph 36 of Article 4 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, where the last of these opening arguments from the prosecutor is being now countered or spoken back against by Melanchthon. He says, lastly, it was very foolish for the adversaries to write that people who are under eternal wrath 
merit forgiveness of sins by an act of love which springs from their mind. That is, for the adversary, the Roman Catholic theologians, to teach that we sinners who are under God's wrath and to be sent to hell have now the ability to get out from that wrath and earn our way out. Like, Why would you ever let somebody out from a death conviction? You're not going to say, well, you know, try to be nice, you'll get out. And doubly so, this is the case, because it can't spring from our minds. As they go on to say, it is impossible to love God unless forgiveness of sins is received first by faith. And the next sentence is going to explain that. Why? Because the heart, truly feeling that God is angry, cannot love God unless he has shown to have been reconciled. I mean, you think about it. When when somebody's yelling in your face, it's kind of hard to feel love for them, right? When, when wrath is being poured out on you, how are you going to feel love? As long as he, that's God, terrifies us, and seems to cast us into eternal death, human nature is not able to take courage. It cannot love a wrathful, judging, and punishing God. Uh, that, that is kind of getting at what Luther, I think, talks about when, he, when he, he reflects on his conversion and how after doing all in the monastery, after, after giving his life and his heart and his health, frankly, to, to, be, to being the best monk he could be, he found this terrifying thought in his mind was that he despised God. He despised Christ. He hated him because he was just this God of wrath who was never satisfied no matter what he did. And that's the situation we're in unless we first receive forgiveness of sins, which then the flip side of that is that forgiveness, like water in dry land, uh, enables something to grow. Yeah, and and also, too, you, you make Jesus kind of null and void mm. in that um, he, he becomes this, uh, and we see this kind of visceral reaction from people too uh, against the church um, when when we recognize that God demands perfection, mm. right? And unless we see the nature of that true love revealed to us in Christ Jesus, that he has satisfied all righteousness, right? And we put our trust in that and not in our own good works. Um, well, then we can't escape the fact that we, we know that we're imperfect. As uh, David says in the Psalms, right? My sin is ever before me. I mean, that that's all we can really see. And no matter how hard we strive, it just becomes this uh, perpetual, you know, we, we, we keep striving towards being better, better, better. And we find ourselves failing and not being loving enough and, and not working. And uh, it just becomes very frustrating. And this, this wrathful God and, and Jesus just kind of becomes an incidental and it's like, well, well, what, what is he there for? Right. You know, and try uh, harder, try yeah, harder, yeah. right? Like yeah, a coach kind like, of screaming at you while you're dying. Yeah. And, and it doesn't go well when, when we have earthly fathers or earthly coaches that you can never do anything that satisfies mm. them. I mean, it just like people suffer real depressive issues and that's exactly where Luther found himself and lots of people have found themselves in that situation over the years. And this is tied really closely to uh, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. As we talk about this this love, and we have this focus on love that, that drives itself toward... Uh, toward others. And we say, oh, I can love other people. I can be a good guy. I can have this kind of civil good works amongst other people. And we get really excited about that. And we want to go try. And it's great. But if we go try to love other people, if we go try to forgive other people without recognizing the forgiveness that God has given us in Christ, then it's all for naught. Mm. And apart from Christ, our forgiveness is junk. It's a dream. It is, yeah. Right? It's a fantasy. It's uh, it's it's us calling each other what we're not. 
uh, which of course is exactly where our culture is today, believing our words have power that well, they just don't have. Paragraph 37 continues, It is easy for idle men to invent such dreams about love, such as a person guilty of mortal sin can love God above all things. That's the dream that's invented. The idle man can invent this dream because they do not feel what God's wrath or judgment is. But in agony of conscience and in conflicts with Satan, conscience experiences the emptiness of these philosophical speculations. So this is a bit of a, uh, not quite below the belt, but it's certainly a body shot punch. What he's effectively saying is like, well, sure, you Roman Catholic uh, apologists, theologians that we are arguing with, if you're an unbeliever, you can say what you're saying in good conscience. But not if you actually have any faith, because if you have any faith, you're going to know that this will not in any way assuage your awareness of sin and your need for forgiveness. So since you are idly not believing, you can be free to make up these things like, I'll be good enough for God, and it, it may, might suit you, might make you feel better. But for those of us who have this this tongue, right, this German uh, word for, for the suffering and the tribulation of faith, which is kind of the most, uh, I would say, the, the most apt description of sanctification that I've ever ever come across is that one word. Uh, for us who are in that dark night of the soul, another way to translate it, uh, there is there is no comfort in saying, oh, God, I can do it. It just, it just doesn't heal. And even as we see Melanchthon t- dealing with the conflict in the church of his day, when we fast forward 500 years, we see it today too. And we are in a place where we have, um, as confessional Bible-believing Christians, uh, Christ-believing Christians, we simply say, if you want to idly speculate, uh, dear church out there, that it's okay to to, uh, buy into what culture is telling you, if you want to idly speculate these things, then go ahead, but at best, your faith is in danger. Right. At best. Um, And so we speak to uh, the church and say, if you're buying into these ideas that are coming in from outside of you, we have some pretty serious concerns. And we want to make sure that we are confessing the same faith, going for that unity of doctrine uh, as confessed in Scripture and as spoken clearly here in the Lutheran Confessions. Melanchthon's argument is really the argument of the year 2017, just as as much as it is the day it was written. Right. Eminently applicable to the present and the need for something more than, well, I identify myself as this, that, or the other thing, and I'm not trying to pick on one group. I'm talking about any of us trying to just assume our way into what we want to be. Uh, that, that threat is always present, and God's answer always is, well, it's the grave, frankly. It's, this is what you are, dust, and you're going back unless I wash you. Yeah, and th- there's this, you know, sinner within us that just won't die. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't, I keep bringing that up. But uh, it's really true, and we see that because, you know, it, it, if you live in the unfortunate unfortunate world that we live in uh, today with the social media sorts of things and so forth that go around, and you see the, the Facebook memes and so forth that, uh, uh, and it, I'm sure you've seen some of that I'm going to reference here, but like the, uh, you know, on the last day, I just want to hold out my hands and that they're empty and I've, I've given my all for God and things like that. And it's like, well, how individualistic and selfish are you? I mean, like, what do you think that you possibly have to offer 
to a holy, righteous, and perfect God that demands perfection. Right. Uh, in the in most of our churches, using the three-year lectionary series, the last three weeks as we've been going through here, it, it's been the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' own words, makes that very clear. Unless your righteousness uh, surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter heaven. And they were pretty righteous yeah, sure. on the surface of yeah. things. But then he takes it a step further, uh, last week's gospel reading, and says, you know, anyone who looks at a, another woman in lust is is guilty of adultery in his heart. And if you hold anger against your brother, I mean, what one of us can possibly stand? And so if we're looking for our acts of love, we really have no hope on that day. And, and, some of us were talking in a lectionary study earlier um, that I'm a part of uh, here in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, we talk about the personal relationship with Jesus. Well, we're all in a personal relationship with God. We are all created, even the unbelievers, mm. right? And we will all stand before that throne on the last day. And there's two ways that you stand in that personal relationship with Jesus, right? Either against him mm. because you're trusting your own righteousness, right? And you're not putting your trust in him. Or, and, and thus you stand condemned, right? Or you stand as one who has already died in Christ and been raised a new life, and thus you are a co-heir with God. And and there the good works can't help but flow forth. And, and, and that's one of the struggles that as pastors we often face is that when we... It seems like a, an argument over the minutiae of words, hmm. um, but it really makes all of the difference in the way that we understand because, you know, w- when we talk about these things and some of the sort of civil righteousness, you know, doing good, good works, loving things for our neighbors, of course, we in the church care about those things. Mm-hmm. We want those. We want civil justice in the world. Um, but when, when it, it, it's, you know, on that, that line of, are you trusting it? Is, is that is that your starting place, um, or are you? And, and oftentimes, the the key on that are are they looking for some sort of glory? Do they need recognition? Do they need thanks in order to do it? Yeah. Or are they just merely doing it because they're in Christ and they can't help but do anything else? Yeah. Um, I mean, that that is what it comes down to. Your initial thoughts and your closing thoughts both reminded me of the uh, I think a very pregnant phrase from our Lord when He's talking about how the servant comes in. And does the master say to the servant, uh, go ahead, have a seat, put your feet up, grab a drink. No, he says, feed me, right? You cook for me. You deal with what I need to do. And then when you're done, does he say, wow, thanks so much, servant. You're amazing. No, when you're done, all you have is you've only done your duty. You've, you've not gone over and above. So perfection still doesn't deserve to be rewarded. It just is what we were created to be in the first place. All that is is just average, like just just the the, the baseline. And so to think that somehow being dropped below perfection. Now I'm going to climb my way back up and have God be like, thank you. You gave all you got. Yeah, well, good job, servant. It's just insanity. It's, it's a complete loss of understanding of who we really are meant to be. And therefore, I mean, we've said this before too, it's how little we really believe in sin, which gets back to his comment even. you know, they, they're, they're idle. Their conscience is idle. They're not even aware of their, their brokenness. So, something you just said made me think of a practical example I can give from, I'm a rural pastor, so I'm going to use a farming example, right? <laughs> and so there's a... Uh, um, a family in, in one of my congregations that uh, the father has this this farm and he's worked it for years. He has a couple sons and the sons already know that their inheritance is the farm, the business, right? And so they are already working alongside 
their father and they're chipping in, they're doing the work, um, they're, they're contributing, they're working to, to, to make it a successful farming business um, for their families as well. And they're not doing it in a way to earn the inheritance. The inheritance is already theirs. They are sons. And, and so they're not trying to convince their father that they're worthy of earning the farm. It's already theirs. Um, and, uh, and so they're just simply doing the work because that's, that's what they do. They're doing what sons do. Right. They're doing what sons do. And so when we understand that that's how we stand in Christ, right, when we have been put to death and raised again in him, we are co-heirs. We are children of the Heavenly Father. And so we're just doing what we're put there to do. And backing up a little bit to where you were talking before, I think that Christians who have died and been raised with Christ have have this really subtle but really, really dangerous temptation uh, to slide from seeing themselves as one for whom Christ has died and who are sons, who do what sons do, uh, and then start to use phrases like, Jesus has given his all for me. So what am I going to do for him? And this ultimately is a question of the law. It's a question that backs into what am I going to do? Not just what is it that God expects of me, one made a son of him by baptism and absolution and receiving the body and blood of Christ and hearing his proclamation, but now that I'm a son, I got to do something. I got to earn my keep. I got to prove to God that I'm worth his death on the cross for me. And Scripture doesn't talk that way, but we we back into that really subtle temptation. And so uh, in a world where our words mean things, this is something to pay attention to that we that we recognize. I am forgiven by Jesus Christ and I get to do exactly what he has put before me to do. I don't do anything beyond what is simply my duty, the work of the servant, the work of the son. I do what God has put before me. And that's fantastic. And we rejoice in the work of God that he's given us to do. A gift that is given because you think you're going to get something back is no gift at all. In fact, it's insulting. If someone were to give you a gift and you'd be like, oh, great, I'll pay you back, you insult the gift. And nobody who has a son or a daughter requires that son to earn their love. It is the most natural thing in the world. How much more so a gift given by the Holy God and being adopted into sonship and the inheritance of the sons of light. You're talking about concord that matters here on Worldwide KFO, the messenger of good news. We're going to be right back. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System and Corporate Synod daily reaches out to our members and partners working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash jobs board. The state of Missouri now permits concealed carry pistols without having the need for a permit. What has that got to do with theology? We're going to use that as an analogy on the next Law and Gospel to tell you the importance of myth. Weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO presents sacred music every night. 
Since 1924, KFUO has presented the Word of God in song. Liturgical, hymnody, beautiful. Hear sacred music weeknights after evening prayer on KFUO as well as on weekend afternoons. You trust in God's Word and sacred music on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Millions of dollars will be spent for cards, flowers, candy, or jewelry celebrating Valentine's Day. To say nothing of the estimated 6 million plus people expecting a marriage proposal. But did you know the Library of Congress suggests the biblical book Song of Songs as a valentine for the ages? Song of Songs was one of the first texts printed with the advent of printing in the 15th century, a popular theme for artists and printers. And the Library of Congress boasts of shelves filled with goodly treasures new and old, quoting Song of Songs 713. One of those treasures is a beautiful example of microcalligraphy, a technique using minuscule script to create images. In this case, a small heart-shaped image with the text of all eight chapters of the Song of Songs produced in 1920 in Germany. Engage with the Bible, the book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Concord Matters, seeking to be of one mind as your sword and shield in these dark and evil times in which we live, equipping ourselves with the Word of God as confessed by the Lutheran Church, which did not begin in the 1500s, 500 years ago with that Reformation we're celebrating this year, but has been the ancient one true faith, going even back all the way to the prophets and the Old Testament saints, all trusting that their works were not enough, but that Christ coming or Christ come is the only hope that we have. We're digging through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, picking up at pa uh, paragraph 38, where Paul is going to now emphasize how little we should be looking to the law saying love, which it does say, and I shouldn't say it so flippantly like that, love, we should not look to that law as if it is our hope because, paragraph 38, Paul says in Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. Paul does not say that by the law, people merit forgiveness of sins. It's kind of a small point, but a major point, right? Paul doesn't say that there. He says the law brings wrath. For the law always accuses and terrifies consciences. You have a very famous uh, Latin phrase there, lex semper accusat, right? The law always accuses. And I don't want to go off on the, on the side here too much, but I have heard the Lutherans seem to get this big burr in their in their their hair <laughs> over the use of that term and they always want to qualify it well the law doesn't only accuse that's true it also instructs but just because it also instructs doesn't mean it doesn't always accuse right so you have to hold both of these things in tension and not make one go away without the other i love lex semper accusat because it is that despair that it creates in my heart that reminds me of my need for christ it is the terror in my conscience that reminds me of my need for christ lest my pride drive me away therefore Paul goes on and the length thing goes on. It, the law, does not justify because a conscience terrified by the law runs from God's judgments. You can't even stick around to hear God's judgment if all you got is the law. They, therefore, err, make a mistake, who assume that by the law, by their own works, they merit the forgiveness of sins. That's not what the law is for. Right. And as you're talking about, the law always accuses. Lex semper accusat. Because 
It always sounds cooler in Latin. It does. Uh, but as, <laughs> as we talk about the law always accusing, even when the law instructs, it accuses. Right. Because when somebody comes to me and says, hey, let me show you a better way, I feel like a loser because I realize I didn't do it the best possible way. I need the instruction. And even in the course of the instruction, I'm being accused. Um, not necessarily that in that case it's adversarial they're not coming uh, somebody's not coming out as my enemy but they're saying let me show you a better way and as we go through all of this talk about love for our neighbor and about how the law always accuses and being shown a better way it's coincidentally february 14th which mm. means it is the festival of a valentine uh, bishop and martyr and as we talk about love, we can think about uh, the words from 1 Corinthians 13, about love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy or boast, and so on. And as we think about all of those things, we think, wait a minute, is this law that we're hearing, or is this word that we're hearing about love, is that law or is that gospel? And when we apply it to ourselves, when we say love is patient and love is kind, love doesn't envy or boast, and I can love like that, that's law. That's instruction. Uh, but it accuses. And when I hear that love is patient and love is kind, I think I need the extra big bouquet for my mm -hmm. wife tonight as opposed to just the normal size bouquet because my love has been insufficient. And I stand here accused. But when we hear love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy or boast, and we say that is the love with which Jesus Christ has loved me and his bride, the church, that is pure, sweet gospel. And so we're not robbed of that pure, sweet gospel. We hear what Christ has done for us, and we say, oh, thank you, Lord, for your great and abundant blessings that we could never deserve, that we can never repay. Thank you for this wonderful gift. Well said. Uh, I was going to go <laughs> off of, uh, once again, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and this is actually how I went with my sermon this past Sunday, was, you know, you read that tough text mm. of, you know, that... Those who are, are divorced, you know, except for the biblical grounds, are condemned to hell. And those who look in lust are condemned to hell. And, you know, it's just Dad, tough you things. You say to your brother, you fool. Yeah, you know, exactly. Your anger at all. Yeah. And, and at the end, you know, I get to stand there and say, this is the gospel of our Lord. Yeah. Right. And uh, it always feels a little awkward, you know, but it's exactly the truth. Because as you just distinguished really well, right, um, it, it doesn't cease the instruction, right? We should not be careless about divorce or anger or lust. I mean, we should actively work to guard against those things and we should daily die to self and rise in Christ, remembering our baptisms as the catechism teaches us uh, to live in. But ultimately the gospel, strictly speaking, is Jesus. He's not an incidental. Hmm. He's not a new lawgiver, right? Uh, we've talked about that in previous weeks as well. He is the one who has satisfied all righteousness. And so when I say those, this is the gospel of our Lord, what I'm recognizing is that law has accused me to the point that it has thrown me in the grave because there's no way to escape it. And I need to hear that. I want to never to live to it, but I can only do that in Christ who has already perfectly fulfilled it. The, the reason we say this is the gospel of the Lord is because this passage is taken from a larger narrative called the gospel, right. which is Jesus coming to fulfill the law 
in our place. It is kind of silly that, that those who are out there at times that would get in, in various fights about, about the use of the law, there seems to be this fear that the law which condemns me won't instruct me. That somehow if I'm forgiven, that therefore I'll forget what the law said. And, and I, 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 there may be those who talk that way. And I guess if you're going to talk about antinomians, that's what an antinomian does is they say the law no longer exists. But I've always been pretty convinced that every time I am condemned by the law. I am well instructed in what it means. And I feel guilty because I want to do what it says. And being forgiven doesn't make me not want to do what it says. It's quite the opposite. It makes me want to do what it says really all the more. And this is why the Sermon on the Mount gives me, both pastorally and personally, a little bit of a panic attack. Hmm. Because, uh, and, you know, power to Sean for going out and preaching this weekend. I punted. That's why God gave me an assistant pastor. And he did a great job. <laughs> and so I let him preach. Uh, and he, like I said, he did fantastic. And he started very much uh, in a wonderful, faithful way. Jesus opened his mouth when he went up on the mountain. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when he gives those beatitudes, those declarative statements about the work of God, he starts with the gospel and Mm. then he comes back to the law, which isn't a way that Lutheran sermons usually go, but it is the way that Jesus' sermon goes. And that's a pretty good thing. And I'm not going to argue with Jesus on his form of of, uh, preaching. Law and gospel is not intended to be a homiletical structure so much as a, a recognition of the two words of God. And the fact that when Jesus shows up, as the Christ, the fulfillment of all prophecy, the first thing he says is, I'm the Christ, the fulfillment of all prophecy, and this is a good thing for you guys. That's gospel. Uh, yeah. Well, exactly. That's, that's the Beatitudes. But I, I, I don't think that we can therefore say, well, he hasn't rightly preached the law. I mean, he did leave them with the old covenant for, I don't know, however many hundreds of years as well. So um, not that there wasn't gospel there. We could kind of trip over our feet a bit on that. But but the point is, you know, uh, Christ knows what he's doing when he declares who he is. And wherever that is, we we want to hear that. We want to believe that in the same way that his law never departs from us. It's not like it's been taken away from the creation we live in. It's merely, it's, it's condemnation now that's yeah. been removed. And and one of the tough things too, that we sometimes face in this kind of thing, and, and, and it's clearly going on here for the adversaries, the, the Catholics, the papists at this time. Um, but we see it in a different way today is, you know, sometimes you get those um, well-meaning parishioners who want those kind of self-help sermons unfortunately and uh and they 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 want some homework some things that they can do mm-hmm. what they're really asking for is more law how can i love my neighbor and the reality is is that if they're truly honest they don't really want that because the very words that they get from scripture um that i would give them um they they constantly fight me on yep, all they don't the time want that. Yep. yeah you know and, uh, and 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 that plays right into this just natural thing the law will always accuse right, everyone wants the law as a pet no one right. wants the actual law when it grows to its ferocious wild state but that's the state Jesus brings it in particularly in the words in the New Testament um, yeah I I know that experience of saying like this is what is good and like the Uh, The people who I love as their shepherds say, no, 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 no. It's like, oh, come on, come on. Let's read the text. Let's pay attention. And yet it's to soften the same people that would like say, you know, give me something to do. There's plenty to do. The doing's never done. Yeah, let's, let's, well, let's hold them both in tension and speak both words. Moving back to Melanchthon's uh, opening arguments now, right? He's going to close up a little part of the listing of these various 
arguments made by the Romans, and now he's going to move us also start moving us toward uh, the conclusion of the opening section. So paragraph 39, he says, It is enough for us to have said these things about the righteousness of reason or of the law, which the adversaries teach. Right. So for right now, it's enough. that's enough of their arguments. Later, when we will declare our belief about the righteousness of faith, the subject itself will drive us to present more testimony. So as we get back into what we believe Scripture teaches about faith, we'll have to bring up more examples. But this is all the examples we're giving you for now. These also will be of service in overthrowing the adversary's errors that we have reviewed so far. And then he's going to shift directions here. And if that's okay, I'm just going to keep us moving. Yeah, okay. So paragraph 40 then. By there, and this is like summation, right? You, you've had your thesis statement at the start of your book, and you're going to write a thesis statement, or you're starting your term paper, you're going to write at the end of your term paper. He's starting his thesis statement right now. By their own strength, people cannot fulfill God's law. But, and you've heard us say it again and again, because it's, it's a major point he's making. They, we, are all under sin, subject to eternal wrath and death. Now, you don't believe you can fulfill God's law? Well, are you going to die? And if you don't think you're going to die, let's test that out. I'm just kind of half kidding, but seriously, it's going to happen to you, right? That's the proof. You can't fulfill God's law. Because of this, we cannot be freed by the law from sin and be justified, right? Since the law is the thing that's going to put us in the grave, it cannot be the thing that sets us free. But the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification has been given us for Christ's sake, who was given for us in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins of the world. He has been appointed the mediator and atoning sacrifice. He's going to keep moving into proving that point, right? But so the law kills us. That's why we die. Therefore, it can't be our savior. That's why Jesus came. It's not rocket science, but for Adam, it's rocket science, right? It's like beyond belief. It, it is incomprehensible, and that's why these these terms and descriptions that Melanchthon uses about who Jesus is and what Jesus does are so important. To call Jesus the mediator, the go-between, mm. um, I guess I don't want to use the word middleman exactly because that has a negative uh, aspect to it, but Jesus is the one who stands in between the righteous wrath of a just, fair God who hates our sin— and Jesus stands in the middle and says, I'll take care of that. You love him. And so that's exactly what happens. Um, he is the atoning sacrifice, the one who covers our sins. Even as we talk about in the book of Leviticus, the day of atonement or the day when, uh, when sins are covered up. Um, and so Jesus is the one who covers our sins, not with any kind of dirt, but with his own suffering and death, with his own blood, he covers us and we are set free. Yeah. And this is this is so central. I mean, it seems so simple and, and on one level we tend to know it. But then it, it's so oftentimes just in pastoral ministry and my own personal experience as well, we we tend to forget what we know so well as Lutherans. And you know, when when you just evaluate some of the Christian content that is out there as far as mm. books, um evaluating other quote-unquote Christian sermons, it it is troubling to me how often Jesus becomes an incidental uh, instead of the very one that stands between and reveals to us the, the nature of true love, right? Uh, Jesus is here and Jesus, you know, wants us to to love one another, right? And and, and just, again, Jesus becomes another lawgiver. Mm. And scripture is very clear. He is not that purpose. He is the law fulfiller. And It's strange how rarely Jesus is the answer in American Christianity. And that goes for any Lutheran as well in America. We've got to watch ourselves too. Just having the name Lutheran doesn't protect us. It is the, the spirit of our age 
that Jesus is rarely the answer, or if he is the answer, he's only the answer because he says you're the answer. And so the words are put in Jesus' mouth to drive it back to you and what you do, as opposed to this promise, right? Paragraph 41, this promise that does not depend on our merits. That's a very classic term there, merit. You got to think of like the Boy Scouts, they get their merit badges when they do a good thing, right? It was the way that the Roman Catholics were fond of talking about how you could store up grace for yourself. We're saying, no, you cannot merit grace. The promise of Christ does not depend on that, but freely offers forgiveness of sins and justification, as Paul says in Romans eleven six. Look, the Bible says this, right? That's kind of our, our the gist of our argument. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Can't be more stark than that. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, which is the real threat. That once you start inserting works into grace, once you start uh, asserting a uh, a string to the gift, once you start uh, asserting a, a contract or an if. To the, to the promise, now it's no longer a promise, now it's no longer a gift, now it's no longer grace. So Paul's argument there being grace to be grace has to be without works. And in another place, Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then lengthen, in other words, forgiveness of sins is freely offered, nor does reconciliation depend on our merits. Same point, same idea. Absolutely. And we're incapable of priming the pump. And that's one of the things that we like to think about is, is as a Christian, God's going to give me all of this stuff, but I got to, I got to meet him not even halfway, just, I got to, I got to show up and at least care a little bit, we say, um, and get things started. But the Bible doesn't speak that way. Paul here doesn't speak that way about grace. Grace comes for you, to you, from outside of you, and you are set free. You are made alive. You are forgiven. You are reconciled. All of these things are done to you. You aren't active in this role, but you are passive. You receive the gifts of God. And so to think that we're going to show up and, and show Jesus how much we care It's a really pious, happy thought, but it's not a biblical thought. Because if forgiveness of sins were to depend on our merits, we are in deep trouble. Yeah, And if reconciliation were from the law, it would be useless since we do not fulfill the law. It would also follow that we would never gain the promise of reconciliation. Paul reasons this way in Romans 4.14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. scary words. If the promise would depend on our merits, Melanchthon interprets that there, understands that, and the law, which we never fulfill, it would follow that the promise would be useless, right? Here's a check for a million bucks, but it won't get cashed until you're perfect. So the check is now not worth anything. Or or to use another uh, metaphor that goes along with this million buck kind of thing right here um, that I was going to use, I I sometimes use this that, you know, as a metaphor, so someone's handing out a million dollars, right? Mm. And you just receive it. And oftentimes people will kind of argue with me. And it's like, well, I actually have to reach out and take that, right? You know, there, there is an active nature to, I have to accept that, right? And I said, no, 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 you misunderstand how this works, right? It, it, it would be foolish that the person reaches out with a million dollars and says, here, like, you know, you're just going to receive it. You know, you the active nature of what, um, you know, the, 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 this motivation towards doing it by our merits would be is if, you know, if you, Jonathan Fisk are handing out a million dollars, right. Um, 
I caused you to hand to out do a million it. Right, dollars, right. right? And and if that's our thinking, right, you know, that if something in my works has caused you to do it, well, I'm in big trouble because I have no ability to make Jonathan right. Fisk hand well, out, out a million dollars, like you, much less the grace of God. It's like right. you're going to mug somebody, right? I mean, that's what activity is, is you got a right. million bucks in your pocket, I go take it. Or maybe I'm waving it up over your head and saying, jump, jump, see if you can get it, right? Yeah. And and none of that uh, is giving it to you in any right. way, shape, or form. And I, I would even counter uh, to the person who says that I've got to reach out and take it. The only reason, if I if I have a million bucks in my hand right now and I push it toward you, the only reason you would reach for it is because you already believe it's mm-hmm. a million bucks. And that's the point of faith, Absolutely. right? That the work will still flow from faith. And I'm the guy who got in trouble for just taking uh, whatever I had in my wallet that day. I think it was a dollar. Um, <laughs> and, and sticking it into a man's shirt pocket in the middle of Bible class. And he was like, he was like, what's this? And I was like, this is a gift. It's like grace. And he said, do you want it back? And I said, nah, you can keep it unless you don't believe that it's yours. And he looked at me and he said, you win. Yeah, cool. So you only, yeah. had, you only had one dollar, huh? It's depressing. I'm a pastor. Yeah, I, know. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't carry cash either. It's it's outdated motive. Yeah. <laughs> the other the other problem is I'm a pastor and uh, I live in a day of electronic banking. That's right. But that whatever. Beautiful segue to paragraph forty three. Actually, not at all. But that's okay. <laughs> Since justification is gained through the free promise. It follows that we cannot justify ourselves. Oh, I mean, it's, it, they're saying it again and again, but it's so beautiful, right? It's because it's free that we don't have to worry about trying to earn it. It's not like we don't want to be good. It's like instead that we are made good. Otherwise, why would there be a need to promise? It, it's, it's like nonsensical to argue the other way. Since the promise can only be received by faith, the gospel, which is properly the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification for Christ's sake, proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. The law does not teach this, nor is the righteousness, nor is this the righteousness of the law, for the law demands our works and our perfection. But for Christ's sake, the gospel freely offers for uh, reconciliation to us who have been vanquished by sin and death. This is received not by works, but by faith alone. This faith does not bring to God confidence in one's own merits, but only confidence in the promise or in the mercy promised in Christ. One of the old ways of talking about law and gospel wasn't to talk about law and gospel, it was talk about the commands and promises. And I like that language because gospel sometimes gets to be, it's, it's a bit jargony. Like, I, what do we mean when we say gospel? And they define it so well there. Well, it is the promise that for Christ's sake, God has forgiven your sins. Done. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and it, it, so often we just take this for granted and I can't, I can't drive it home enough as Melanchthon can't drive it home enough mm-hmm. that this really does have real impact in our world still today. We're still fighting the same old battles. And so what we really have to do is just cling on to and, and not let go of those words and promises, that, that real gospel. And, and it is just amazing how freeing it is. I mean, even in my own life, you know, just kind of observing, you know, times in my younger age when I had a misunderstanding of this and man, I was striving, striving, striving. I had to, I had to do this and I had to go off on short-term mission trips all over the place and like just run myself into debt and all, I mean, just all of these things that was unfortunate for a a poor understanding Mm. of the Christian life. Now, are there good things accomplished through that? Yes, but it really didn't bring me any hope. It didn't bring me any comfort. Right. What it brought is greater terror and a whole lot of depression and a whole lot of frustration. It's not that the good works done to earn merit are bad works. 
in the sense that they didn't do good things. Yeah. But they aren't, though they aren't earning you any merit. And as a result, they aren't comforting your conscience. Right. And so once, once, uh, finally my, my eyes were open to the nature of the true gospel, it's like this weight was off. Mm. And, and now I just, you know, there's a lazy bum doesn't do anything, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I sit around, I do nothing. And, uh, no, I, I just, I don't even need. Yeah. I would counter that if you don't see it. Right? Yeah. You don't see it, but you, you, you're a pastor, so you got to be active in one way, shape, or form. But rather than looking at yourself now, what you're seeing is what's in front of you. What you're seeing is what right. needs to be done. And you're doing that without the, the burden of believing that somehow you got to perfect yourself. You're doing the work of a son, to go back to what yeah, we were talking right. about in the first segment. You're just doing what a son of God does. All right. Today's a new day where you live in your in your baptized identity as a child of God, and you go live that out, and that's what you get to do. It doesn't look like much to you, but to your neighbor who needs your loving care, to your God who sees everything that you do as being redeemed and covered by Christ, your mediator and your atoning sacrifice, you are all good because Jesus said so. Thanks be to God. This special faith, paragraph 45, and we do got a good segue from that one. This special faith that Peter Hill was talking about, by which an individual believes that for Christ's sake his sins are forgiven him, and that for Christ's sake God is reconciled and sees us favorably, this faith gains forgiveness of sins and justifies us. In repentance, namely in terrors, this faith comforts and encourages hearts. It regenerates us. It brings the Holy Spirit so that we may be able to fulfill God's law. That is, to love God, to truly fear God, truly be confident that God hears prayer and obey God in all afflictions. This faith puts to death concupiscence and the like. So oh, faith- goody, we're back to concupiscence. Yeah, right. I'm excited. Oh, you jumped in. Speak. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this concupiscence is the inclination to do evil and the... And scripture says, even our evil inclinations are sinful. And so it's not just that uh, sometimes we want to do bad things, but when we don't do them, it's really all just okay. Uh, Go go along, get along. Uh, But instead, our evil desires are bad. But here we hear about Jesus who has uh, put to death. Our concupiscence. Oh, step on to that, though. So what does it mean? I mean, I could, I think I could misread this. This faith puts to death concupiscence and the like as saying, therefore, I no longer have concupiscence. Oh, no. that's not. And I see where you're coming from, yeah. but that's not what it says at all. Instead, this faith puts to death all sin. Those sins of the things that I actually do. When I look at my brother and I say out loud or more commonly just think in my head, you fool. Uh, you know, going back to this past Sunday's text, or when I uh, fall into the sin of lust, or whatever the case may be, but to say, I'm inclined off the bat to hate the people around me. I'm inclined to be angry and frustrated and anxious and panicky and idolatrous. If I do anything based on that or not, that is covered by Jesus Christ. And that is what this text says. He has covered it and atoned for it and it's gone. That's where the next paragraph goes. The faith freely receives the forgiveness of sins. It sets Christ, the mediator and atoning sacrifice against God's wrath. So so where is concupiscence put to death? In Jesus' body. And I believe that, right? Even though I still find this body of flesh carrying me around. And so this faith that knows the body of flesh is there, but also knows what Christ has done. This faith does not present our merits or our love. This faith is the true knowledge of Christ and helps itself to the benefits of Christ. This faith regenerates hearts and comes before 
the fulfilling of the law, like one who would see a million dollars and reach for it first has to believe it's valuable. Not a syllable exists about this faith and the teaching of our adversaries, that is, the medieval Roman Catholics were not teaching this way. Therefore, we find equal fault with the adversaries, that is, as they find with us, because, first, they teach only the righteousness of the law, and, second, they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. With just two minutes left, fellas, closing thoughts. This doesn't only apply to the Roman Catholic adversaries of the apology to the Augsburg Confession. It applies today, too. And we continue to struggle with this very same thing of, well, a good Christian does. And people in the church, people outside the church try to tell the church exactly what she's supposed to do without using the word faith. Mm without talking about Jesus Christ. The church is supposed to go love people, so go love people and leave Jesus out of it. Well, it doesn't work that way. That's what the medieval Roman Catholic Church was trying to do. It's what a lot of the the visible church on earth is doing today. But instead, the church of Christ has faith. The church of Christ sees Jesus as her Lord and Savior and receives these promises with a bold confidence in God's loving care through the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what sweet comfort that brings me when when we have that understanding. It regenerates, it renews me. And that's why you can't you, you just can't do about anything to keep me away from receiving those gifts of God in the divine service on Sunday. Um, because I need that to be comforted and regenerated and made anew. And we think we have a, a stranglehold on busy schedules and wondering, you know, on our deathbeds and so forth, have I contributed anything to this world and so forth? The, the same problems were present then to at, at that time at the Reformation that are present here today. And where do you find comfort? Well, when that burden is taken off because Christ has done it all. And there you find not laziness, but you find true peace and you are regenerated. You receive a new heart that just uh, is such at peace. And we all know a lot of demands on us. Um, and when, when that burden is taken off, you can just do the work that's in front of you and not, not feel like it's up to you to save the world because Christ has already done it. That's my guest, Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul's Wine Hill in Emmanuel, West Point, Illinois. We also got Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstead, Illinois. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and this has been Concord Matters, seeking to be of unity in mind according to what God has surely said. I'll tell you what, universe, there is no difference. The story never changes. From age to age and year to year, we're living in the same problem. From dust you were taken... And to dust, you keep going back. You didn't get out of the dust in the first place by climbing your rate. How'd you get out? Because God spoke it into being, and that's the only way we're going to be getting out of that grave on the last day. Thanks be to God, that word has become flesh and dwelt among us already, has been crucified and died in our place, has risen from the dead, ascended, and plans to return. A universe, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, and it may not be today or tomorrow, but I'll tell you what, I look forward to waking up with you at the dawn. Until then, I plan to rock on.